Butch and Sundance, Connery and Cage, Lindhagen and Cranberry Vodkas. This episode, Great Things Come in Twos. Welcome to Channel 8 and a Half. Hello, and thank you for joining us at Channel 8 and a Half, a show about movies and TV and pop culture. My name is Joe Galina. And I'm Andrew Hanna. Andrew, how are you doing? I am doing great, Joe. After last week's mention of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, we thought it would be fun to explore our favorite on-screen duos in action comedies and comedy films. Now, there are so many amazing duos, but we tried to whittle it down to just a few this time around. So it's going to be a little bit of a shorter episode, but let's jump in. Let's do it. And let's be clear. We're talking about duos, but we're not doing duos from the beginning of time. As much as I would love to talk about Cagney and Lacey or Laurel and Hardy, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and (laughs) Costello, Ren and Stimpy, all the classics, we're staying in modern times here. No one wants to hear us talk about Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell in His Girl Friday as much as I would love to. Unless that's something you're interested in, then let us know in the comments. But uh, starting with the action comedy genre, what is first on your list, Joe? There were so many choices for action comedy, specifically because action comedy, it feels like, lives in duos. It lives in the comedic pairings. And We'll get to it a little bit later, but also our favorite comedy pairs. There were so many to choose from. Yeah, and I guess a side note to our listeners, we had initially thought to explore favorite duos in all of film and television. But to your point, there are so many to choose from and we'll likely miss a few. And there are so many more we want to talk about. But if you do like these types of themed episodes and would like us to expand into the other genres, please let us know. I'm going to start off with the oldest one on the list just to get it out of the way. It's not even that old, but the movie 48 hours is one of the movies that defined action comedy. Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte, they play two cops and Eddie Murphy is the the fast talking new young cop. And Nick Nolte is the old grizzled one. If you watch it today, it does not hold up to the politically correct standards of which we live in. (laughs) What would hold up? Not an Eddie Murphy bit from 1982. Exactly. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I had to bring it up because it is probably the defining action comedy. And when I say defining, the the movie that sets up all of the tropes, the buddy cop trope, the old grizzled veteran and the young hotshot cop, really the movie that gave Tommy Lee Jones a career. Because <laughs> what is Tommy Lee Jones if not an old grizzled cop? And it's the pacing is incredible, but also the action scenes are great. It's directed by Walter Hill, and Walter Hill did a lot of, I mean, Streets on Fire, Streets of Fire, which not the one I should have let off with, but also the Warriors. <laughs> yeah, nobody knows that one either. <laughs> I'm re- we're really leading off with relatable content from Joe yeah. today. But if I'm sitting here and I'm thinking name an action comedy, I think of 48 Hours first because it was one of the first ones to do it. Was it? It wasn't the first, but I would say it's one but of the most. But it was like one of the most the first memorable. Modern. It's yeah. one of the first modern. It, it sets up the tropes. I mean, it really set off Eddie Murphy's career because Eddie Murphy is electric in that movie. I watched it yeah. a lot as, as a, a kid, which is not something you should show a small child. But my aunt <laughs> which explains had a, a lot about you, Jeff. Boy, does it. <laughs> my aunt had the VHS copy. And I can picture the box. I can picture the tape in my <laughs> mind. And it was one of her favorite movies, too. Mm-hmm. And so it would just be on. And so I can see it clearly in my mind, just 
different scenes playing i'm not sure i could put them in the correct order because i saw it so many times as a kid just sort of jumbled up yeah but the dynamic between nick nolte and eddie murphy sets the foundation for what so many other really action comedies do now the straight-laced guy and the wild card the reluctant team up right Mm -hmm. what is what is men in black you know stodgy tommy lee jones and you know hot shot cop will smith yeah, seven, and even if it's not a comedy, but that trope lives on through both drama and comedy. And it does have a modern sensibility. If you do watch it now, the political correctness, again, maybe not as much, but it has a modern sensibility and a modern pacing to it that you can watch something, again, from 40 years ago that does hold up in those standards today. Yeah, yeah. And that's rare, especially, I mean, the pacing is just completely different just mm-hmm. given 20 years. Although this was what, in the 80s, 85? 1982. Yeah. And really, the the plot is nothing spectacular. You know, it really isn't. It's just two cops teaming up in order to track down a killer. And really, he's, I mean, Eddie Murphy isn't even a cop. He's just a criminal who's got paroled that gets teamed with Nick Nolte. And they go, all right, find a killer. The point of the movie isn't the plot. The point is the dynamic between the two of them. And really, that's where the action comedy lives, is that the plot kind of is uh, inconsequential. Really? Mm-hmm. You know, what is the other guy's plot about? Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's about <laughs> yeah, the other guys. <laughs> I'm going to talk about that one, too, and I'm going to bring yeah, that up, I and that's why. about that one. <laughs> but it's really, it lives in the dynamic between Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell. Yeah. Will Ferrell's the straight-laced accountant. He's not an accountant, but... I don't even remember the main plot of that movie. Mark Wahlberg is a cop that yeah. gets put on desk duty after he accidentally shoots Derek Jeter, and he's... <laughs> Well, New, I know that, New York's like, favorite son. <laughs> I know like everything surrounding it, including how they're now basically the main duo after, was it The Rock or who was it? Oh, Samuel Jackson the, and The Rock. Samuel Jackson and The Rock. Yeah. Jump off of the building. Yes. Brilliant. <laughs> you know, I didn't like that movie when I first watched it. I know. I remember because we saw and it then, together. Yeah. When I saw it the second time, I was like, oh, this is actually really funny. <laughs> But the plot doesn't matter. The plot no, is yeah, Steve Coogan is a billionaire and he's transferring some money and there's a scheme about the pension plans and eh, yeah. whatever. It's fine. It's more about Mark Wahlberg being <laughs> flabbergasted that Will Ferrell is married to Eva Mendes in that movie. hiding, honey, but this dinner was tricky. Oof. Who are you? I'm Dr. Sheila Gamble, his wife. Come on, seriously, who is that? His old lady. Sweetie, it's a workstation. Got it. And you come in here... Dressed like a hobo, it's distracting. I know you're working. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Come on. Seriously. Come on, what? Who is that? <laughs> He's just Yo. so dumbfounded. <laughs> How his backstory, Will Ferrell's backstory in the movie is that he was an, <laughs> accidental, an accidental pimp. pimp. <laughs> Which is a great rap album name, by the way. Accidental pimp? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of the buddy cop genre. Yes. What is your first pick? It was Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker. I mean, that was the duo that I was raised on. I loved Rush Hour. I mean, Chris Tucker's arrogance paired with Jackie Chan's just earnestness Mm -hmm. make for the perfect fish out of water situation because both of them are really fish out of water in this high stakes situation. You know, Jackie Chan's fish out of water in the United States and Chris Tucker has no idea what he's doing. Exactly. Chris Tucker in being able to do things well. (laughs) Exactly. Just with the FBI or whatever. But life really. 
And so you see the juxtaposition of Chris Tucker acting like he knows what's going on and almost, you know, trying to guide Jackie Chan through this and basically impose on him the same condescension that the FBI agents were imposing on Chris Tucker. It's almost like he's taking it out on him. And Jackie Chan is just, he just wants to get his, I guess, honorary niece back. He just wants to do the right thing. Must take me to see Council Hyde right away. Man, just sit there and shut up. This ain't no democracy. Yes, it is. No, it ain't. This is the United States of James Carter now. I'm the president, I'm the emperor, I'm the king. I'm Michael Jackson, you Tito. Your ass belong to me. Why would they not want my help? Because they don't give a damn about you. They don't like you, I don't like you. I don't care. I'm here for the girl. The girl don't like you. Nobody likes you. You came all the way over here for nothing. You ain't gonna be on the Which boy? I like Rush Hour 2, I think, more than the first Rush Hour, specifically because I think I do, because I like seeing Chris Tucker in China and just seeing him as the true fish out of water, not just in China, but just, again, Chris Tucker is the fish out of life because he's just kind of, to use a term that I used last week, magooing around (laughs) the whole time, just accidentally falling into, hey, I fell on top of the bad guy. Lee, was this the guy that you were chasing? <laughs> and then Jackie Chan, who's actually good at things. Yeah. Being just, again, dumbfounded at the fact that oh, I do all this work. And this guy just comes in, magoos it all up, and somehow it works out. You wonder how he's made it this far in life without being shot. <laughs> he's a police officer. They give him a gun. <laughs> I w- let's talk about another Jackie Chan, though. Jackie Chan and Owen Wilson. Shanghai in Noon. Sh- Shanghai Noon and yeah. slash Shanghai Nights. Mm-hmm. Because it's the s- kind of the same dynamic as well of Owen Wilson being a, a fraud. You know, everything oh, yeah. that he says is complete nonsense. Someone watched Rush Hour and was like, we should make Rush Hour in the Wild West. <laughs> Let's do that with a blonde guy. Exactly. And horses. <laughs> Plot wise, too, it's very similar. Oh, they're very similar. But I, I think, I, yeah, that's right. Because he's coming from China to help find the princess. And I'll, yeah, I forgot about it's that. It's right. basically the same plot. But just in one of them, they go, yeah, are, and old timey horses. Cool. I honestly think the reason Rush Hour stands out to me and maybe why it's my favorite buddy cop duo is because it wasn't the typical white cop and black cop. They were both people of color, which brings a different dynamic that Mm -hmm. you don't see often. And Jackie Chan himself is an anomaly in that he's a total badass, but doesn't really act like it. Because he does amazing fight scenes that are also slapstick bits. The combination of those two things is incredible. And really, Jackie Chan is the only person that can do that. Yeah, like the typical martial artist is the stoic, mysterious presence. But Jackie Chan is usually always the underdog in a situation. And you actually see him get hurt and grimace when he gets hit. Unlike most fight scenes where the main character is like Rambo and he's taking hits and brushes them off like it's nothing and is usually in control of the situation. Jackie Chan feels as though he's flying by the seat of his pants. Yeah, He's not Keanu Reeves and John wicking it. Where just the he's in control the whole time, taking on 50 dudes in this well-choreographed fight scene. No, no, no. He's just bouncing back and forth. He uses chairs. He'll take up a pot and just bash it on someone's head, and then it doesn't work. Although Rush Hour is a very kind of popcorn flick, it still is offering you like a sense of mastery when it comes to those fight scenes. And it's incredibly watchable. And Chris Tucker is doing what Chris Tucker does really well, but not too much. Yeah, exactly. Like in The Fifth Element. Fifth element, he becomes too much. In this, it's subdued enough 
to where you get the Chris Tuckerness, but it's not overkill. Like you said, just right. Like it was just outlandish enough to be funny and not annoying. So is that what we're calling? Are we calling Rush Hour the ultimate modern action comedy duo? For me, it is actually, now that I think about it. At least Buddy Cop. I can't think of another Buddy Cop duo that. I do think it is the most pop culturally well-known. Yeah. When you think of a buddy cop, a modern buddy cop team, I'm going to guess that the majority of the people that you were to poll would say, oh yeah, like Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan in Mm -hmm. Rush Hour. Yeah. No, I agree. All right. It is decided. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) There will be no objections unless you want to pick somebody else, in which case that's fine. Yeah. We can be swayed very easily. If you were to make a compelling (laughs) argument about somebody else, eh, that's fine. All right. So what's next on your list, Joe? Even more modern than Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan, Kevin Hart and Dwayne Johnson, a.k.a. The Rock, have become a really great comedy duo because they've done a few things now. They've done the two Jumanji movies, and they also did a movie called Central Intelligence, which I don't know if it made a ton of money. I don't know if it was critically acclaimed, but I really like it. I've never seen it, and I wanted to see it. It's just one of those things that I was like, I'll wait for it to come out on one of the streaming services. It is the perfect put it on on TBS and just watch it movie. Yeah. Because The Rock plays a former fat kid in high school who, you know, got bullied and Kevin Hart was the jock, right? (laughs) Oh yeah, exactly. But The Rock then turns into The Rock and he becomes a spy. And so he comes back to town. It's 20 years later, you know, the 20 year high school reunion. My man! You better back the fuck up! Whoa. Back up, man! If If I give you these fists, Fist your ass. Calvin, it's me, Bob. What? I'm sorry, do I know you? Do you know Robbie Weirdick from high school? Are you kidding? What? But you're Robbie Weirdick? Yeah. Get- God, man, look at you. You lost like 200 pounds. So you gained it back in muscle. Oh my God, you look great. Dude, you used to be fat, Robbie. The Rock just sort of edges himself into his life and accidentally gets him caught up with this plot to sell nuclear codes to like a black arms group. And so Kevin it's basically Ar- Gross Point Blank meets 21 Jump Street. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. But the thing about it is The Rock's, his character is still stuck in that mindset of being in high school. Like he's very insecure the yeah. whole time. He wears, it, it's not Hello Kitty shirts, but it's some sort of like a logo like that. Like he'll just wear a pink shirt with like a Hello Kitty type of logo on it. He yeah. wears a fanny pack, but he's <laughs> he looks like The Rock and he's huge yeah. and he's very, you know, shiny bald man with a lot of muscles. Women are hitting on him in bars and he's just ignoring it. And he goes, oh, <laughs> like oh, I'm done with that life. <laughs> and, you know, Kevin Hart's like, what? What are you talking about? But the whole time he's saying to, to Kevin Hart, like, you were amazing. You were great. You were the only person who was standing up for me in high school. You were my only friend in high school. Kevin Hart's character is going, I didn't, I stood up for you once. I told some guys to stop bullying you that one time. We weren't friends. And it's, it's actually surprisingly an emotional story that I really, really liked. It's totally worth watching. It's very light. Like it's not a heavy watch by any means. Yeah. Yeah. I really like it. Oh, I want to check that out. That actually sounds like a solid foundation for like a good relationship arc. It is. And yeah. the the ending is very easy to see coming. But again, you don't come for the plot twists. Yeah, you come yeah. to see Kevin Hart and Dwayne Johnson play off of each other. Mm-hmm. And for that, it's it's really great. Jason Bateman also has one scene where he plays 
such a snobby asshole. It's incredible. Even in for, for Jason Bateman levels, because he's really good at it. Not uh, like yeah, he's really good at it. <laughs> but it's like, it's jacked up to 11 snobbishness from Jason Bateman. You know who plays snobbishness surprisingly well? Who? Adam Scott. Oh, yeah. He's such a good douchebag. Incredible. Like in Step Brothers, but even more so in The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Robert, have you ever been down to the southern part of the Gulf on the Bonita Run? Always wanted to. Yeah. I hear it's amazing. It is. It's gorgeous. <laughs> Are Bonita fish big? Uh, what? Dale, don't interrupt the man when he's telling a story. No, 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 no. It's fine, Robert. Um, I was asking about the story. What's fine. this guy's deal? I don't know, son. It's okay. Well, Dale... They are what's called a trophy fish. So, yeah, they're pretty big. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> he played Griff the bully in Boy Meets World. And he was kind Did of a really? snobby bully. Yeah. I don't remember that. Mhm. A very oh, crazy short arc. He wasn't in yeah. a ton of episodes, but he was like the rival to Harley in Boy Meets World. And then the two henchmen, one of them played by Ethan Suplee and the other one whose name I cannot remember, kind of switch sides to Griff and then Harley gets all, you know, mopey about it. And then they switch sides back to Harley. Oh one of the God. first roles, one of the first roles that Adam Scott had was as Griff, the bully in Boy Meets World. It's funny. Cause I just started rewatching Boy Meets World and I haven't gotten to when they're a little bit older, but yeah, I actually remember this. The first season of Boy Meets World is really strange to think about. Cause they're, I it's think in middle really school. Good. It's yeah, they're in middle so school. good. Even the pilot episode is, very good. I was apprehensive in putting it on because I was thinking to myself, okay, I wonder if this is not going to hold up in the way that- It's going to disappoint you. In the way that Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers didn't hold up when you I bought the DVD. shut your mouth. <laughs> Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers does hold up. <laughs> Chip and Dale's aside, but it actually holds up really well and it's yeah, it actually, does. it's still really funny. It's shocking how good Boy Meets World is and it does hold up. And how surprisingly expensive I mean, explicit relative to Disney. I mean, it was on Disney Channel, but dealt with a lot of kind of... Adult issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the guy who rides the motorcycle, he gets into a motorbike accident and is in a coma in the hospital. And Sean is crying <laughs> over his body. And then we never see him again. It's just like the end of the season. I want to say season four. And then yeah. he's just gone forever. And you go, whoa, oh what happened? Now, in Girl Meets World, the sequel that follows Topanga and Corey's daughter, he does come back. So we find out that he did not actually die in that motorcycle crash. But uh, man, Boy Meets World getting heavy. Talk about a cliffhanger that's 20 years long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's so true. That's so weird that they brought him back. You watched Girl Meets World? I'm so Oh, I was, I was very curious because I love Boy Meets World and I, I wanted to know, what are they going to do with this? And Was it any good? Look, man, I'm not the age range that they were trying to get with Girl Meets World. Which doesn't make sense. Like, why are you going to direct it at a younger age group if they're not going to know what Boy Meets World was? They're not going to care who Corey and Topanga yeah. are. They're not going to care. So they brought back, I watched a surprising amount of episodes of Girl Meets World. <laughs> More than you'd like to. More than I should probably be admitting. (laughs) They brought back Angela, who was Sean's girlfriend girlfriend for a long time. I mean, obviously they brought back Sean. They brought back Eric for a few episodes. You know, they weren't just one episode. Mr. Feeney shows up for one or two episodes. But kids today aren't going to care about Sean and Angela. Exactly. So they should have just made it directed toward us, like the millennials who grew up on... Exactly, but we're typically not the audience that Disney Channel's trying to hit, so it'd be weird to have... But, like, I mean, 
a lot of us are going back and watching Boy Meets World. So, I mean, Disney Plus has a Mandalorian. So, I mean, they could have made it an adult thing. They could have. Maybe you know they probably I mean? like didn't it, think. I mean, Girl Meets World. Did it do well? I have no idea. I don't. I mean, I'm not exactly in touch with with the audience for Girl Meets World, so I don't know if that's what the people are talking about. Possibly my favorite joke in Boy Meets World to this day is when Eric is trying to convince his parents to let him do something or another, and his dad goes, we can't take you seriously with your fly open. He zips it up, but the tail of his shirt is still hanging through his fly, and his parents are still laughing at him, and he just... And he rips rips, his shirt through the fly. He rips his shirt through his fly. That bit has stayed with me since I was a kid. But next on my list, Jamie Foxx and Christoph Waltz in I, Django Unchained. I had that on my list. You're counting this as an action comedy? Meh, I guess loosely, because I think their dynamic was funny. But when you phrase it that way... Oh, now we can open this up to a whole host of things. If we're counting Django Unchained, the movie at the end where Jamie Foxx burns down the slaveholder mansion <laughs> is an action comedy. Let's do you're, it. You're telling me that Jonah Hill dressed up as a Klansman, telling his fellow Klansmen to be thankful that his wife cut the holes in their sheets is <laughs> not a comedic scene. <laughs> it is funny, but that doesn't make it an action comedy. <laughs> what would you call Django Unchained? I would call it more of a adventure story, and ad- more of a fairy tale adventure with set in you know 1800s slavery, yeah. a slavery uh, setting, uh, the American South. That's what I want. <laughs> an adventure, an adventure fairy tale set in Confederate era American South. I agree, but since we're going to wedge in some adventure films, my next one was Harrison Ford and Sean Connery in The Last Crusade. I was going to ask this question too: of Are we counting Last Crusade as an action comedy? Because I wanted to talk about Harrison Ford and Sean Connery. Yeah, I think we can let it slide because their duo is so charming and funny, and it made their father-son relationship feel so real. Like the frustration of a son with his father who sees him now as this flawed human being and can never gain his approval. But I also love the moments when they're fixated on solving a puzzle and just the focus and excitement that they share and the way that they sort of play off of each other. It just made for an interesting dynamic and relationship arc. And also the first line that Indiana Jones has when Henry goes, Junior, and he goes, yes, sir. You immediately get the dynamic. It was incredible that just from the first line, yeah. You understood exactly how this was going to go to the point where, you know, he's criticizing Indiana. Dr. Jones. Yes. yes. I will take the book now. What, what book? book? You have the diary in your pocket. <laughs> you don't. Do you think my son would be that stupid that he would bring my diary all the way back here? <laughs> you didn't, did you? You didn't bring it, did you? Well, you did. Look, can we discuss this later? I should have mailed it to the Marx brothers. Well, you take it easy. Indiana's just looking sheepish in the corner, being like, Dad, shut up. You're embarrassing me. In front of the nice Nazi woman. (laughs) (laughs) And then when they realize, Indiana Jones realizes that 
he has slept with someone who's also (laughs) slept with his father, which is, I'm sure, a whole host of things going on in his brain at that point. And I think it's so cool that George Lucas pitched Indiana Jones to Steven Spielberg as James Bond, but within the adventure genre, and then wrapping up the trilogy with Sean Connery playing Indy's father, given it derived from the very character he was so well known for playing. We're going to talk about Sean Connery later, but it's it's kind of amazing that the pitch that Lucas made was, oh, you're not going to be able to... No one's going to give you James Bond. Here you go. Let's make this instead. Yeah. This is James Bond, but with mummies and tombs. And a whip. Yeah, and a fancy hat. Yeah. Is The Rock considered an action comedy then? Because it's not. It's not an action comedy, but I just want to talk about Sean Connery more. It's not, but I would say Michael Bay's action films don't usually take themselves very seriously. Sean Connery and Nick Cage aren't comedians. You know, they're not comedians, yeah. but they can do quips. And Sean Connery yeah. especially specifically because he's got the stoicism of it and he can say all of the lines very straight faced whereas nick cage can be the the wild and crazy you know sidekick you know i forgot nick cage was in a movie with john travolta yeah face off yeah and i I wouldn't call it a duo but they are an unlikely pair to star in a movie together what a ridiculous movie think about the premise of that movie If you were to sit somebody down and say, okay, here's my big budget action movie. It's going to be about these two guys who cut their faces off to look like the other guy. That's ridiculous. But it was very much in line with the 90s. Like the 90s action movies consisted of studios that were just mixing a bunch of random crap with action movies to one up the ridiculousness of the last. So it didn't feel out of place at the time. I mean, did it to you? Like, did you think it was weird at the time it came out? No. And it's actually not a bad movie, but it's so ridiculous i mean yeah the the premise was ridiculous but i mean there was good conflict there you know like they send in a dude undercover into this prison only to get stuck there because all of his records of the mission were erased think about what you're saying you're talking about a movie where two people cut each other's faces off and wear them on the other guy and you're saying it so seriously and everybody nobody questions this nobody's like hey man this is weird right This isn't something that should happen. But that's what I'm saying is that it's just a mashup. I mean, someone saw Silence of the Lambs and thought, oh, let's up the ante. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But but that's horrific. That's what they should be saying. They should be like, hey, John Travolta, why do you want to cut off Nick Cage's face? Why do you want to do this? This is horrifying. I mean, at least in the Mission Impossible movies, they treat it like it's outlandish because a lot of the technology in mission impossible is kind of kind of is impossible yeah you know especially with the the mass being so completely perfect and then the changing of the voice yeah yeah but i think we can dive into comedy duos now this is the hardest category because there are so many like we talked about at the beginning of the show for the last you know 80 years you know since cinema really yeah. And radio, to be honest. Mm-hmm. The double act is the staple of comedy. I would say it's probably the most well-known form of comedy, if that's even something to say. Because the act of one person bouncing off of another yeah. and that rat-tat-tatness is... Yeah, I would argue that comedy needs at least two people because yeah. even when one person is playing the straight man, that is still imperative for the bit to work. The one who is the butt of the joke and the one who is the making of the joke. You know, and this setup and the punchline, hence, you know, the double act. Exactly. And speaking of that, my first duo is Simon Pegg and Nick Frost because they've both been in a lot of movies together, but have each played both sides of kind of the straight man and butt of the joke. I knew we were going to talk about 
this. I didn't put it on my list because you I knew you were going to do it. it. I knew you were going to bring it up. What I love about them is that you can clearly tell these two guys are good friends and have been for quite a while, which makes the movies where they're meant to be close believable because the chemistry's there. And in the movies where they're either just meeting or estranged, that much more interesting. Like at World's End, where Edgar and Wright basically flips the script with having Nick Frost be sort of the, the guy that's wound tight. Usually Simon Pegg is the one who plays the straight man. Nick Frost is playing the buffoon. Shaun of the Dead did it. Hot Fuzz did it. That's where World's End flipped it on its head. Exactly, where yeah. Nick Frost was now the straight-laced, bookish straight man. And Simon Pegg got to be the just disaster. He's such an abominable character in that movie. And Nick Frost playing the straight man is comedic in itself, but it speaks to Edgar Wright's ability to find jokes even in his casting and in a way uses the rule of threes to establish Nick Frost as the buffoon in the first two movies and then the third film in his Cornetto trilogy, making him this ultra serious businessman. I wonder if that's what contributed to people not liking World's End as much. It didn't for me. I think the tone of that movie, and we talked about it on our Edgar Wright episode too. It's such a depressing tone and Simon Pegg's character is both depressing and very caustic that it's difficult to watch. And then the likable enough, like, no, he's not frost. Even when he's playing the frustrating idiot, he's still lovable. Yeah. Lovable enough where you wanted him around in world's end. Simon Pegg is just so toxic that you you don't want him around. You, you, actively do not want him around because you know that he's not good to have around you're not rooting for him no and it's so strange that in the end he wins the world changes to his mindset Mm -hmm. becomes the leader of the alien alien apocalypse world yeah let's talk about the blues brothers (laughs) oh god how did i not think of the blues brothers even dating before 48 hours Blues Brothers yeah. came out in 1980. Again, the classic tall, skinny man, short, fat man comedy combination. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. If the Blues Brothers came out today, do you think it would be successful? Because that movie doesn't really have a plot. Well, it does, but I doubt that you can actually make that movie today. Uh, that's they're true. Basically, and... They're just trying to get money for to save their church, right? Yeah, they're trying. Well, the orphan, <laughs> yeah. the orphanage, the church, or the kind orphanage, of, kind yeah. of both. Yeah, yeah. But really, all they're doing is just causing chaos and mayhem and tons of property damage to the city of Chicago. I mean, just the ridiculous chase scene with uh, the cop cars and they're just flying everywhere. They need to get money from their for their church however possibly possible. Honestly, Nick Frost and Simon Pegg would be perfect as, as the modern day Blues Brothers. I mean, I think so. Oh, that would be so interesting. Is it also cheating if I say that the Blues Brothers is my favorite musical? No, of course not. Because it is. Universal Studios? True. I mean, yeah. it is kind of cheating, though. Let's be honest. It's a jukebox musical. I mean, any more cheating than saying the I have a spell on you number in Hocus Pocus is a zombie sequence? Shush. <laughs> you shush. You shut your mouth when you're talking to me. No, it's not cheating. So there. <laughs> the Blues Brothers is an interesting example, too, of a Saturday Night Live movie that actually works. A lot mm-hmm. of the Saturday Night Live movies don't aren't received well. 
And I should say it that way because I do like A Night at the Roxbury and I don't care who knows it. That's interesting because I always forget that it was an SNL skit before. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it. it it's taken yeah. on a life of its own. And I, I know that specifically because when you live in Chicago and you listen to the radio, especially when the radio was popular, not now, you couldn't go a day without hearing Sweet Home Chicago. <laughs> on the radio though they played it on the radios they played it in bars they played it at sporting events that song was everywhere and it still yeah. is so maybe that's why i am completely biased in my love for the blues brothers it, they drive all around the city of chicago all the landmarks lacquer drive the daily center where yeah Dan Aykroyd is like we are approaching richard j daily plaza and i see i can do the accent because I'm from here. The one thing that I don't like about the Blues Brothers is that they drive, this is a very specific reference that nobody's really going to care about. They drive from Joliet Prison, which is like 40 miles outside the city, into downtown Chicago, and then to Calumet City, which is very, very far south, over the span of one conversation. That is impossible. You will not be able to do that. This is lies, I tell you. It really bothers me. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, going from Oxnard to downtown L.A., you know, you'd run into traffic. No one would believe that. Exactly. Thank you for making it a little bit more cohesive for our listeners who might get yeah. that reference. To our one <laughs> listener in Germany, I'm sorry, you're not going to know what this one is. But please keep listening. We love you. All of our international listeners. <laughs> All the tens of you who listen. What's next on your list? Lucy and Ethel from I Love Lucy. Okay, a classic, a classic. They have such a special place in my heart because it's one of the few American shows my mother used to watch back in Egypt. And when she first immigrated to the U.S., she would watch it all the time because it was familiar. So I grew up watching their shenanigans play out. But I love that they're just no more competent than one another. And Lucy comes up with these crazy hijinks schemes and after very little persuasion involves ethel it's still it's amazing that something from the 1950s can still hold up to this day probably because a lot of it's physical comedy and a lot of it yeah, is wordplay yeah. the most famous one is the conveyor belt the scene chocolate, the yeah. chocolate where they're they're stuffing the chocolate and they're trying to wrap it and it's, the conveyor belt's just getting faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and it yeah. still holds up the vitamita vegemin scene yeah where Lucy's just drinking this clearly alcoholic <laughs> cold medicine and she's just getting more and more drunk and yes, stuttering. All your problems is in this little bottle. A uh, little bottle. <laughs> uh, vitamin vitamin. Vitamin vitamin contains vitamins, meats, vegetables, and minerals. <laughs> Uh, yes, with Vitamina Vegemin, you can spoon your way to hell. All you have to do is take a big tablespoonful after every meal. It's wonderful. And you know my mom, I mean, when she's joking around or telling a story, you see a bit of Lucy yeah. in her. I mean, because she watched it so much that she just picked up some of her mannerisms. Mm -hmm. But just culturally, they are an iconic duo. It's a classic for a reason. Yeah, exactly. They're not husband and wife. But the dynamic between Liz Lemon and Jack Donaghy in 30 mm -hmm. Rock and the dynamic yeah. between Leslie Nope and Ron Swanson in Parks and Rec, very yeah. similar in that she is, whether it's Tina Fey or Amy Poehler in the show, is the the kooky, you know, go, doing the hijinks. And then Jack Donaghy or Ron Swanson is the straight person. Or somewhat straight. <laughs> somewhat, yeah. You know, you'd never call, you'd never call Jack Donaghy the straight man. 
<laughs> she walks in and she's like, are you wearing a tuxedo? Why are you wearing a tux? It's after six. What am I, a farmer? That is such a meta show. Where they go in like the business hierarchy and they go, NBC Universal is owned by Comcast, which is owned by Shinehart Wig Company. <laughs> and then GE buys them out halfway through and yeah. like they're trying to sell washers or refrigerators. <laughs> or just Jack's, how appalled he is that it could be bought out by a company from Philadelphia. <laughs> I want to bring up two movies that are very similar in presentation, but have two, I think, incredible duos are you going to all right go i want to talk i want to talk about the movie super bad okay and i want to talk about book smart what do you think i was going to say swingers and wedding crashers that would have been a good one too two vince vaughn performances but continue with what you're saying we can get to it afterwards Superbad and Booksmart came out 12 years apart Superbad came out in 2007 Booksmart came out last year 2019 uh 13 years apart thereabouts 12 13 i'm good at math both follow high school seniors on what is essentially their last hurrah for high school. In Superbad, it's about buying alcohol to get into a party. In Booksmart, yeah. it's about the two girls realizing that they've wasted their high school years by studying so much and going on a last hurrah to find a party. Superbad, the main two are played by Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah. In Booksmart, the two main girls are played by Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein. And it's amazing the similarities. They both open up with a semi-dance scene. They both open up with driving to school. They both involve trying to find a party. These two movies would make a great double feature. Yeah. Olivia Wilde directed it. And Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein are both really great in it. And they are very super bad-esque in the, the humor, in the sort of outlandishness of what they kind of just, how they are. But both are great performances. And both are great duos that kind of, I think, in my mind, go hand in hand. I think Superbad is one of the best adventure films, structurally, that it, it kind of flies under the radar when you think of it in technical terms, because it is just kind of a silly comedy. But it really is solid. It's a solid screenplay. It's very well plotted. Greg Matolo, the guy who directed it, he also directed Adventureland, which is really, really good, too. Not as outrageously funny as Superbad. It's uh, Adventureland is more of a coming of age story with Jesse Eisenberg yeah. and Kristen Stewart and Ryan Reynolds is in there also. It's really dark. It gets darker by the end. It does, yeah. but it's quite good. Going back to Swingers and Wedding Crashers, though, they are extremely similar. Swingers and Wedding Crashers do have a very similar vibe. Yeah, as far as, you know, two guys just trying to get chicks. <laughs> like, that's basically. But that, I mean, by saying it that way, that is the tone, though. I honestly think Swingers is probably better than Wedding Crashers, and I know a lot of people might disagree with that. I think Swingers had a bigger cultural impact than Wedding Crashers, definitely. I know very few people that have seen Swingers, though. Oh, but people know it, though. Yeah, they know the references. You know, the Vegas baby Vegas thing, the you're so money. I mean, maybe this is a 20 years ago. It was a lot bigger of a deal. And when we were younger, the the Swingers speech pattern, specifically Vince Vaughn's, it, that is just kind of how a certain type of person talked. Yeah. <laughs> So you're not just like fucking. No, I'm not fucking with Honestly, you. Honestly, Mike, I'm telling you, you're money. You're so fucking money. All right, now I want you to go over to that girl and I want you to get those digits. You're money. Come here a second. Listen to me. Now look it. When you go up to talk to her, man, I don't want you to be the guy in the PG 13 movie. Everyone's really hoping makes it happen. 
I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet. You're not sure where he's coming from, okay? You're a bad man. You're a bad man. You're a bad man. And they play off that character in Wedding Crashers, and I think that's what's so great about Wedding Crashers is yeah. they take the Swingers Vince Vaughn character and archetype, and they turn it around so that in Wedding Crashers, when he's the one who says, I'm going to get married to Isla Fisher's character, you're kind of blown away by it. You know, it's it's a gut punch because yeah. it feels like he's betraying Owen Wilson and what they built and kind of who he is. Isla Fisher's relationship with Vince Vaughn is so perfect. She steals the show in that movie. Because he is known for manipulating women and she basically manipulated him and that, if anything, turned him on even more when mm-hmm. he found out. <laughs> like, ah, uh, someone who can match me. Someone who gets me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you ever seen the Knife Guy skit on Jimmy Kimmel Live with Will Ferrell and Ryan Gosling? No. You need to see it because it's not a movie, but it is next on my list because I would love if they would make a movie together. But uh, I believe they use it to promote the time change for Jimmy Kimmel Live. And basically, Will Ferrell and Ryan Gosling walk out in the middle of the show and roll in this set that looks like this QVC show where Will and Ryan sell knives. What, what the hell are you doing here, Jimmy? Uh, well, I, I, what am I doing? What are you doing? You're supposed what to be my guest. We sell knives at 1130. Everybody knows that. I we didn't know. Knives. I didn't see the there's sheet. A, there's a sign-up sheet. I didn't read the okay. sheet. I've never seen the sheet. Why I don't know where the sheet came from. Here? We've been here for three months. Yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know how this is my fault. It doesn't matter, Ryan. Let's let's get to chopping, huh? (laughs) It's just Ryan Gosling just standing there scowling at at Jimmy Kimmel. You need to watch it. It's hilarious. (laughs) Ryan Gosling plays a very good stoic scowler. He he did it in Drive. I mean, Drive is one of his best performances. He has, you know, four lines in that entire movie. He has great comedic timing, surprisingly. Not surprisingly, I mean, he is a really funny guy. But he, I mean, him and Russell Crowe played really well off together in The Nice Guys. Oh my God, I can't believe I forgot Nice Guys. Which I guess you could consider, it's not an action comedy, it's more of like a mystery, but they're very funny in it. I love the two of them, and that movie was so great. If ever there was a movie that was built for you, it's The Nice it was, Guys with yeah. Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling in a plot that is essentially the closest anything's ever going to come to Chinatown. Chinatown, yeah. <laughs> They are two of my favorite actors. I'm so glad that movie was as good as it was. And we can probably talk about it more in depth if we do another one of these episodes. But this is probably where we're going to wrap up this week. It's a slightly shorter episode this week, and likely next week will be as well. We wanted a little bit more time to divert our attention to a new project that Joe and I are working on and looking to get off the ground by the end of the month. But if you like the style of this episode, let us know if you'd like us to expand it into other genres. Until then, we'd love to hear from you and what your favorite duos are in action comedies and comedy films. As we've mentioned before, we are shooting to reach 1,000 subscribers on YouTube to become partners, so if you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing. If you have any ideas for a theme you'd like us to discuss or a film, TV show, anything pop culture, let us know on YouTube, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find all those links on channel 8 That's channel 8 and a half completely spelled out.com we have new episodes every thursday until next time my name is joe galino and i'm andrew hannah and this is channel eight and a half